To the brave, dreams know no boundaries and ambition knows no limits. This combination is a force to be reckoned with, a trailblazer whose story is a testament to resilience, determination and the pursuit of excellence. Born to immigrant parents, she inherited the spirit of tenacity and the power of dreams. But it was on the field as the only girl amidst a sea of boys that her ambition found its spark. Rising from player to captain, she shattered expectations, setting her course towards greatness. In this conversation, we unveil the threads that tie together a remarkable woman's journey. She not only holds a seat at the table, but believes it is her duty to help others rise, especially those from diverse backgrounds. With a position deeply embedded in the world of venture capital, her role as a connector is paramount. Get ready to be inspired, enlightened and motivated as we introduce you to the one and only Kange Kanene, a force of nature and a champion of change. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this opportunity and congrats on In Her Shoes. Thank you so much. And where are you today? Are you home today? Where's home for you? I'm home in downtown Brooklyn on a Friday and really excited for the weekend. <laughs> awesome. Excited to hear. I mean, the weather's probably got to be a lot better where you are than where I am. Um, and I, I know some. You are? I mean, it's London. It's grey. I mean, what else <laughs> do you expect? <laughs> um, but yeah, summer's, summer's well, in. To New York. Uh, well. I, I don't tempt me. It doesn't take me too much to get over there. So uh, I'll, I'll find a reason. But I'm so glad to have you here and super excited for our conversation for a number of reasons. I think you're an absolute powerhouse. And I know that your career and your journey is just something that is going to add tremendous value to our listeners. And so to start the conversation, I really want to go back and to the early years of Kange, because I actually think that's probably the genesis of, you know, yes. all of all of your history and it will it will start the thread to explain where you are today. So when young Kange thought about success, you know, what did that mean at a young age for you? It's, it's such a good question. Growing up, my parents are immigrants from Uganda and East Africa and both have their own separate unique stories. But when you think about the common denominator between the two, what was most important to them was education. They always told us, if you get an education, no one can take that away from you. And that is the vehicle to any success that you will ever see. And so that was my initial impression of success. So we were never allowed to skip school. They always helped us with our homework. We were encouraged to go to the best schools that we got into. And so, was, so at that time, I thought, as long as I get good grades, the world would be a good place. That's incredible. And you, so you mentioned with childhood, it was mum and dad both at home. Did you have any siblings? Yes, I'm a middle child. I always joke that means I know how to manage up and down. Yes. <laughs> not that's true. Explains all a lot, actually. Much, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we're all pretty much uh, equally spaced out. My brother is two years older. My sister is two years younger. Okay. Okay, awesome. So your brother is older. Did that have an impact on you? Like, was it, you know, kind of I want to follow in his footsteps? How, how was that for you having an older brother? Very much so. I always really wanted to be like him. I copied him in most of the things that he did in his life, um, at least growing up. And okay. the good thing is, is he never made me feel like I was being a nuisance for doing so. Um, even as, as extreme as so he was always a pretty good athlete. Um, and so in middle school, 
I decided that I wanted to play tackle football, tackle American football, and be the only girl on the team because he played football. And so I told my mom, and I th- and she said, sure. I thought I think she thought I just wouldn't actually do it. So she's like, yeah, of course, you know, you can play. And so that summer, he taught me all the plays, and we would like pretend to tackle on the, in the front yard in preparation for the first day. And I went, and I was terrified. But I ended up doing it for two years, and it was probably one of the most impactful things I've ever done. Believe it or not, back then I was actually shy and a little bit more timid, and now it's really like, not at all. Yeah. I know, <laughs> <laughs> right? But it gave me this confidence because, first of all, I'm in a less credible position. At least in middle school, seventh and eighth grade, you're about the same size as the boys. So from a size perspective, it wasn't that unmatched. And right. so that helped me to know that, okay, yes, they think I'm probably not going to be as strong, but I was faster, faster. I actually ended up being the team captain. It was a oh great my word. experience. Yes. Look at then you. I, got to high school. I know. Then I got to high school. My mom was like, okay, enough's enough. Cause I was still my size, which was five to 120 pounds. And she's like, you're not doing it. I said, okay, I agree. I think, you know, <laughs> there's a point where I'll be injured, but yeah, those two years were amazing. But again, initial the impetus for doing it was because my brother was a good football player. This is incredible. And so you really did have that almost like competitive, ambitious drive from a really, really young age. Yeah. You also grew up um, in and around the Michigan area, right? Was it Ann, yeah. Ann Arbor that you grew up? Um, I went to school in Ann Arbor, good memory, okay. but lived, grew up in East Lansing, Michigan. Okay. And obviously highly educated and it was a very diverse environment. How, as a young black woman, did you feel growing up kind of in that ecosystem in that area? Yeah, so actually my community was not diverse at all. It was basically all Caucasian. Um, I did not have a black friend until I was 18 years old. Wow. Uh, right, of course I had relatives and, and so forth and I had some black acquaintances, but really I, I didn't really have friends. And so hmm. because I didn't know anything else, I, I didn't think it was strange. And back then I was watching media like Nano Tuono and Felicity and all these shows where everybody was white. So I just thought the world was white and I just didn't yeah. think it was strange. But I remember when I was a little bit older, maybe I was 16 or so, and I always had a lot of friends as well. My mom said, I just think some of your friends might not actually be your friends. And I, I was thinking, you know, being young and dumb, I was like, you're just jealous that I have more friends than you. Like, you know, so right. But in hindsight, I know what she meant. And I definitely experienced racism, but I just really didn't know that until I went to college. I had more people of color in my network and just realized that there were some really inappropriate things that happened. But I think that's part of the experience now, as you know, I, I work in tech. I'm always the uh, minority, whether it's life, woman, age, race, everything. And I know how to conduct myself, even though it still is very hurtful when things happen. And I'm very aware of all the environments, but at least I know how to, uh, from the outside, you know, fit in because I've had to do it basically forever. It's so important because I, th- I think even and I resonate with it because when I was growing up, it was a very similar situation. I yeah. pe- parents were all about education and it right. was go to go to the best school that, you know, we can get you into based on your skill set and your knowledge. But my school yeah. was predominantly um, it was a predominantly white school. And I obviously grew up feeling like I stood out, feeling like I was kind of the black sheep. But I didn't yeah. know that that feeling was any different to maybe what other people were feeling. Exactly. What I did start 
yeah, but what I did start to recognize is like there were things that I wasn't allowed to do. So I wasn't allowed to, you know, go and hang out on Fridays after school in, you know, in you guys call it the mall, but in like our shopping center. And I would have to come straight home. And Mm -hmm. so even developing friendships at a really young age, I felt was something that I found quite hard because there was this um, lack of synergy between the culture that I was brought up in versus the culture that I was surrounded with um, predominantly in my day-to-day life. So I think it's a really interesting piece of the puzzle for, for anybody and for you as well, because how did that change or did it change when you went to um, college, university, because you studied a STEM degree? What mm-hmm. was that like? From a social side, I remember my the second year of university, I met this woman. She's Indian. She was kind of confusing to me because she's Indian, but grew up in East Los Angeles and had a very thick Latina accent. But she also wow. looks I was like, who is? And she's very loud and boisterous. And I had just never met anybody like her before ever. And I was yeah. almost scared of her because also she's from L.A. She seemed cool. Cool. I remember she, right? And I was like, I'm from Michigan. So she came into my dorm room. And so back then I was still really close to a lot of my friends from high school. So I had all these pictures on the wall. And I was like, all of my white friends and me, of course, stand out. And so she looked at my pictures and she said, how come all your friends are white? And I remember thinking and saying, who else would they be? I like literally didn't understand what she was saying. And she was like, okay, this weekend, I'm going to take you to a black party. I just was like, what does that mean? I mean, how do you like, first of all, you're not black one. And second, I just didn't get it. So anyway, she did. We went to this party. Everyone there was black. And I was just like, whoa. And I also felt uncomfortable because, you know, I grew up Ugandan-American. I don't really, at the time, didn't really understand the black American experience. I felt like I looked different whether I did or not. I don't know. But yeah, so that was my, and so it was funny. It took her to bring it out of me. I also, she was very, you know, kind of intrusive. We're very close now, but she also looked Mm. in my closet and she said, your clothes are all dark, like, Black, back then I thought black pants was like what you wore when you wanted to dress up. And she's like, you have such beautiful skin. You should always wear pastels and white because it looks so good on you. And I, again, no one had ever said that to me before. And to this day, when I go shopping, I think about her. I'm like, okay, I can't wear black because I look good in all the colors. You know I mean? so, yeah. And I love the dress, by the way. Loving yeah, the right? pastel. Yeah. It de- definitely does for you. Exactly. Thank you. So personally, that was it. But on the computer science side, which was my major, I had the same experience as, as Poppy High School, which is, you know, no women, no black people, you know, everything like that. And also, I didn't, a lot of people in that major grow up playing video games or like really into computers. I didn't have that background. And so I also mm-hmm. felt behind that I didn't have this natural passion for computers. And so it was a really hard time from academic side. I studied a lot. I, I you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have a natural talent in programming, but I made it through, but it was not easy. (laughs) Did you know, kind of after or whilst you were doing the degree, uh, even as you were coming to the end of it, what you wanted to do next? I didn't. And I think that's, that was hard because I didn't have a line of sight. I just knew that this was a degree that people thought was impressive. So I thought, well, that must mean that someone is going to want to hire me. But I didn't know what the role, I mean, I knew at the time the hot companies to work for like Amazon, Microsoft, just starting Google and they paid a lot of money. So I thought, okay, if I can get the big offer from one of those, then that's, I guess that's why I'm here. But I I couldn't visualize the specific role I'd want to do or where I'd want to live from a city perspective, all that stuff. I didn't know. It's so interesting, isn't it, that we as, 
young humans go into education, we walk out with a shoulder load full of debt and we right. don't actually know what's the next best step for us. Yes. Um, and I do think sometimes there is a gap in the education system where there's a need to help young people you know, based on their skill set, help them navigate and guide into what should come next. Because yes. more often than not, you find people leaving university. And I don't know if this was the same for you, but going into jobs where, and yeah, I understand the trial and error thing and kind of going mm -hmm. into jobs where you learn a lot, but then it takes maybe three to five years to figure out what it is you're actually really good at. It, was yes. it the same for you? Definitely. Definitely. It's also because I think computer science was, I studied it because um, I used to always be an AOL instant messenger chatting with my friends. My dad, <laughs> yeah, my dad mistook that for me being fascinated by computers and he suggested, yeah. why don't you study computer science? And I didn't know what it was. And so I did it. And so because I stumbled upon the major, I, I, I didn't, like, I just, what, I didn't know what it was going to do because the reason I picked it wasn't for, because of the fact that I loved it. And I think that that inspired the fact that I was lost. <laughs> well, hats off to both you and your dad, because there was a lot of foresight there, you know, having, yeah. having done a STEM degree, even in even today, right? There's obviously not enough women in, in STEM. So uh, it was definitely a worthwhile, uh, a worthwhile achievement. So you worked both as an external and internal consultant before and mm -hmm. after getting your MBA. What was yeah. your transition like going in-house at SAP? Um, Interesting. So I came to SAP after getting MBA and yeah. in school, I had heard about internal consulting as a function. And I thought, okay, I've done external consulting. One thing that would be great is that your client is your, the company that you work for. So I thought that would be more fulfilling, um, but it still had the dynamic nature of doing project to project. So that was the reason why that was on my mind. But from what I understood, to get into those roles, first of all, those teams are typically pretty small. They usually report to the CEO or someone very senior. And usually your background had to be working for specific firms like Bain, McKinsey, BCG, or have worked at the company for a very long time. I didn't have either of those backgrounds. Hmm. But I joined SAP in a rotational program, and um, they allowed us to have a, like a wildcard rotation where you could kind of pick where you want to go in the company. And you were free labor because your salary is being paid for by the rotational program. So in hindsight, it's super embarrassing that I did this, but I wrote this really, really long email to the chief strategy officer and said, this is who I am, this is a program, and I want to work from you. And I thought he would just be like, yes, but uh, he wrote back, he said he'd have a call me, but then on the call, he said, are you qualified to work on my team? And I said, no. <laughs> I, don't, you know, I was like, but I'm a, I'm a fast learner and I'm really excited. And he was like, well, the rotation is short. I don't have time to train you. I don't see what I would get out of this. And I just was so surprised, at, you know, and then I just wore him down. I kept week after week just bugging him, being like, this, let me come. And finally, he said, OK, you can you can do a rotation in my team, which is only six weeks. Turned out going well. And then he hired me afterwards. But that was it was brute force. by. by you know that. what? It was brute force. But my gosh, that was that's a testament to you in terms of the relationship that you built because he, you know, ultimately could have still said no, but you clearly right. won him over by your proactivity. And if that's a testament to your work ethic and the way that you apply yourself to anything, be it something you know or you don't know, you want that person as part of your team. Um, <laughs> so that, and he told me that like, later. He said, you're the hardest working person I've ever worked with. And it was such a compliment because he's a very hardworking person. So you're right. I think I've never been the smartest or the like most fit, but I, I have the hustle to just 
maybe go further than other other people aren't willing to do. And that's that's how I've got indoors open for me. I love that because I think there's so much truth in in the things that you've just said there, which is about applying yourself and the hustle and the proactivity to getting what you want rather than kind of just saying, well, I've got the skill set and I've come out with the first. So hand it to me on a plate, this, right. you know, pay and the job title that, that I now expect. So there's definitely a difference between those that um, talk versus those that do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At what point in your career did you start managing people? Very recently in the last two years, I've always wanted to, I've had mentees and I've had um, interns and people from my same rotational program working in my team, but never officially. So it's, it's been recently. Okay. And when you look, when you look back at your career, did you, so obviously being in the IC roles, the individual contributor roles, and then moving over to management, did you feel that it was like a natural transition? Obviously, there's a big difference focusing on kind of your role and you achieving and then switching that to managing people. Do you feel that, and luckily it was within the ecosystem of SAP, so I can, I can imagine that was great, but how were you supported in that transition to be able to support the folks in your team to do and be better? Um, a lot of it was, well, one, I've had a lot of different types of managers, really good, really bad. And actually, I think I lot, learned a lot more from the really bad ones than the good ones. And so when I went in, I was very clear about the type of manager I wanted to be. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so that helped me because I didn't mm. feel like I needed to, Not you can always get better, but I, I knew the things that I, I valued. And so with that, then I used the tools SAP had just on top of it. They, they help you with things like, you know, how do you consider how to um, rank your team from performance side, right? You just have one budget and nobody can get the same. And that kind of stuff is hard to think about, especially like when you have a team like I do, which is very strong. So those types of skills, they helped you with more like the tactical managing skills. But in terms of the soft skills and how to do it, I feel that my past experiences taught me that. And it's an accumulation of trying to optimize all those um, observations. Did, were most of your managers in the past men or were there some women in there as well? I have never, I have a woman manager now. I don't think before that I ever had had a woman manager. Wow. No, yeah. I think it's a real, you know, a telltale sign of kind of the, the state of the world, you know, as it pertains to women in leadership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you feel about the tide changing and you being a part of that as a woman leader in, you know, a really quite significant strategic role at SAP. How do you feel that you want to contribute to making it a better place for women in leadership? Um, I just want to be an example. I want people to look up and, and, and see a positive person. But I also want to make sure that when I'm hiring for my team, that I think about diversity, diversity holistically. Like I think there's this trend where people think we need more women and they just go from no woman to all women. And that to me doesn't make any sense, right? And so I always want to make sure that I'm considering men in every conversation that I have, although I have a bias for women. Yeah. I get that. I get that. And so I think that's probably natural in some ways because I heard something the other day that was it was actually an awful, uh, an awful thing I heard, but it was essentially men in the 1990s talking about they how they perceived women and the gender roles. And okay. I think that some people used to think that feminism was was very focused all on women and that actually okay. excluded men. And actually, it's 
something that I really wanted to get across in this podcast as well, which is that it may be called In Her Shoes, but this isn't just for women. You know, this is a place for everybody to listen, learn and understand, because I actually think that's what's going to be required to make those changes at the top to ensure that the right people rise and you know some of those are going to be women and you know absolutely some of those are going to be men but it's about making sure that everybody has the equal opportunity right yes absolutely i just um started being affiliated with an organization last week that i really like called him for her which is about getting more women on public boards but of course because there's more men on public boards we need to rely on these men to help us get on the boards right so it's really powerful men that have raised their hand to say I want to increase my network of powerful women that I can recommend for boards and then we can work together side by side. I love the concept. Yeah, totally. That's, that sounds awesome. So it was, it was him for her, right? Yes, I'll send you the info. You should definitely be yeah. part of the network. <laughs> I will definitely look at that. That sounds amazing. So you've now spent oh, like over a whopping 10 great years at SAP. You now obviously serve as their VP of the Accelerator SAP.io, which is actually where we met. Yeah. And I can only assume this is an incredibly rewarding role from a mentorship perspective and supporting and identifying like the most latest and most innovative emerging tech and obviously their executives. So Uh tell us a bit about your role and why it's so important for you to be a part of it. I love my role. I've been at SAP for over 12 years and this is the best role I've had. No disrespect for the other people I've worked with in previous roles. Um, Because it's the only role I've had where I can actually touch and feel the impact. Before, I think I was more just influencing, making recommendations. I didn't really have any of the full decision-making power. So my role now is, as you mentioned, I lead SAPIO, which is SAP's um, external accelerator for North and Latin America, where we just get to go out into the market and find the most interesting companies like Zuvu, the company you work for, and bring them into SAP's ecosystem. But on top of that, what makes it awesome, besides just learning about the innovation, is we are very intentional about finding companies managed or led by underrepresented people. And I think if you know about investing, then you know that there's just a very small demographic of people that get venture capital. But of course, it does not reflect the people that are actually innovating on new ideas. And so as a company as big as SAP, if we can say that we are going to support these individuals and help them scale, then that that has global impact. In addition, SAPIO is non-dilutive, so we don't invest in the companies and don't take equity. And we focus on the business development side, which is helping startups get big contracts with SAP customers with a revenue share. And so when you are a founder, especially an unrepresented founder, going to having a direct sales model into a corporation, that's really, really hard, right? First of all, what's the buying group you're trying to sell into? Who's the individual who makes the decision? And then how do you get to that person? So if SAP can reduce all those barriers and help these startups get revenue, then maybe they don't even need to fundraise and they don't have to give up that equity because they're getting these contracts. And I think that is the most impactful thing that that we can do. It's such a phenomenal initiative and I'm not being biased, but obviously (laughs) having, having been and seen and explored kind of obviously the other tech houses as well, I've always been amazed at how... SAP and then, you know, inadvertently SAPIO have been able to lead and really be a market leader in this approach of wanting to support young startups and really integrate them into the ecosystem of SAP, making you feel like you're part of it. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I can only recommend it as highly as I possibly can for any, you know, startup, young company, because 
it really has transformed obviously the company that I work for uh, and taken us to to the next level so in terms of like when you think about interviews or moments where you needed to feel the most confident Kange in those moments what shoes do you wear Uh my mother's shoes Um, she was just an amazing person she passed unfortunately in August 2022 um, coming up in a couple so days is the anniversary. Thank you. And just an amazing inspiration and my, my biggest cheerleader. And so when I think about going on stage, I just channel her and I can picture her, you know, cheering me on. And that gives me the most confidence. She has um, a ring that she wore. And so I put the ring on and that makes me feel like I'm wearing her, so to speak. And so that gives me the the shoes that I need. That's such a wonderful answer and I appreciate you so much and I wish I was there in person because I just want to give you a big hug because that is such a lovely answer and I'm so glad that you you have those moments where obviously before you go and you deliver a keynote or and I've seen you do some incredible uh, sessions before and so I know those moments before you're about to go on stage with all the lights and the mic that you have that moment of just connection grounding and it just fuels you with with that confidence so that's incredible you, you if we if we switch a little bit to kind of your personal life how uh-huh. and, I, the, and the reason I do this because I feel another reason why I started the podcast and I, I speak about it quite candidly which is I'm 34 you know I'm mm-hmm. also at a pivotal point in my career but also in my personal life where I've at some point probably got to think about, do I want to have kids or do I not want to have kids? And I've, I was actually having a conversation this morning with, um, she's actually going to be an up and coming guest on the show. Uh, and she built her career in the UK and then actually went on um, to work for one of the largest uh, investment banks in America, now lives in Arizona and is just an absolute powerhouse. But I said the same to her and she said to me, it's so interesting, isn't it? That obviously at this point, this most pivotal point in women's careers where they have the opportunity and they're ready to kind of make that hockey stick moment that they have to think about, do they want to take a step back um, and and then slow down and ha- and have children because men unfortunately don't have to think about those things. How mm-hmm. do you see that for you and, and kind of your life? It's a good question because I th- you're right. Right when you have the arc of your career is also when you need to make the decision about, about having kids. I, for some reason, growing up, have never really had the aspiration to have kids. I know people dream about their wedding and, 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 and having a family. It hasn't been something for me. I, I really love kids. I have nephew and nieces and I've decided that I think an aunt is, is the best role for me sure. because I get yeah. to spend time with them, right? And then step back. Bringing my mom into the picture again, you know, she was a fantastic mom and one of the things that she did was she basically canceled her life and we were her 100% focus. I mean, she lived and breathed for us and I think that's the kind of mom I'd want to be and so I know if I had to be, if I was a mom, my life would be completely different. I travel all the time for personal and for professional. I like to go, I mean, everything I do, I would change. And I don't think that I'm in a position now where I'd want to change it, even though, you know, it would, it would be gratifying in a different way. Secondly, I've never really had aspirations of wanting to be pregnant. So I would definitely adopt if I decide to have kids because wow. um, I think that would be a good fit for me. But likely, probably not with the kids, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> 
But you know, this is this is also an interesting thing because I think that there's also this that's totally cool and okay and you know exactly you say if you ever do choose that maybe one day you may want to the fact that you're saying that you would choose to adopt in those moments is just so admirable because there are so many young children young humans that need homes and so it, it doesn't actually mean that you need to provide it yourself, but it's actually just that concept of being able to give back in any way that you you can, you know, to, to again to the next generation. Yes. Absolutely. Have you have you ever felt pressured by society to do those things? Yeah, I've found that, especially in a work setting, somehow you're less credible if you're not married <laughs> and don't have kids. You're seen like irresponsible yeah. or you're, I mean, I, I'm a lot younger than I look, but people assume a lot of things when you don't have a family. And also, mm-hmm. like, even respecting boundaries in terms of the hours that you work, right? If there are people on my team that say, I have to leave at five to pick up my kid from daycare, and I say I have to leave at five because I want to go to spin class, that doesn't seem as responsible. But I'm like, this is, this, you should be happy that I'm trying to keep myself healthy, you know? My mental so, health, yeah. Exactly. And I think, so that's frustrating. Definitely. Um, I have friends that even wear a wedding ring that aren't engaged because it gives them some more clout. And I, I believe that, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, in the workplace in particular, I, I, I feel it added to the reasons why people think I'm less credible, <laughs> you know. Well, and it's something that I really hope to change because, you know, as a woman, somebody who's been through and had to sacrifice a lot to progress in her career, and that's relationships, that's time that's energy that's friendships uh, you know I respect any woman that's got to where she is and you know hasn't found the one or right. is deciding not to have kids because those are also admirable things because you're mm-hmm. you know what's right for you and right. I think that we have to get rid of that you know that false narrative that if you haven't got a family and that you're not settled that it makes you less worthy in some ways of progression in you know in the workplace mm-hmm Yes. When you, I also remember, yeah. I'll tell you a quick funny story. So mm. around the holidays or so forth, people will say, oh, I, my kid is coming home from college or whatever. Um, so I really want to make sure I, I ha- I'm home around the holidays and working less to spend time with my my kids. And, and I said, well, I am the kid. I'm going to my parents' house and they want to see me. So <laughs> we have the same scenario here. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I love yeah. I, yeah, that is very true. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I I can definitely uh, resonate with that a lot. I still will definitely take on the the child role in any way that I possibly can to absorb uh, absorb that goodness uh, from from my parents for sure. Right. So, when you look at your hires, uh-huh. what or if you're looking to hire somebody new, because I know mm-hmm. that there's probably going to also be listeners who are thinking about their next job, thinking about mm-hmm. their next role. As a leader in an incredible organization, what are some of the things, the key ingredients that would stick out to you that would make you think, oh, God, yeah, I, I want to speak to that person? Yeah, I, I, this is fresh because I hired three new people this year. Um, first of all, someone that has a whatever it takes attitude. Right. They understand that there is a job description, but you're going to have to do things outside of the job description. Are you willing to really roll up your sleeves and just get the work done? That's really important. Um, Do we have a natural chemistry? Can we bond on something? That doesn't mean I want to hire people that are like me because that, of course, doesn't help diversity. But sometimes even when we're very different, then we bond on that. Like, oh, you love to 
to scuba dive. I've never done that, but I love that you're passionate about it. So we can bond on your passion for that, or you know what I mean? Um, so that's one. The third is understanding of what you're getting yourself into. So have you done research on the team, on the role, on me as a leader? You know, do you know what's happening? Because if you've done the research, it makes me think that you're serious about the role. Which is the, all such great pieces of advice. I mean, obviously, we connect over karaoke, which is... Yes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Among oh, many things, but that is the main thing, yes. <laughs> that is the main thing, definitely. And in terms, like then flipping it, what would be some like negative themes that you think oh you know perhaps that that wouldn't really be for me something that maybe and the reason I ask this because I think it's important as people mm-hmm. are preparing to apply for new jobs or they're thinking about how they reframe like reframe their CVs what are some of the things that you see on CVs that kind of turn you off a little bit some of that's not self-actualized and the, the perception of yourself doesn't match the reality you know yeah like you can tell yeah. someone that's super cocky and you can tell they're very much inflating their their background and when you dig deep you realize there's just nothing there right yeah. and get, don't get me wrong i'm all about framing your background in a way that makes sense for the role but there's ways to do that where you're not just like completely again in, inflating it being an ass and so, yeah <laughs> exactly and so you can you can pick it or i see this with founders too they'll, they'll reference something that i actually know about like maybe they'll say that they have a relationship with somebody that i know I check into it. They don't, so, you know, it's like, first of all, you mm. should know who my network is so that you don't get caught in this lie, that right. kind of stuff. It's honesty from the beginning. You think if you're doing that now, it's just going to get worse if I were to hire you. Oh my God, for sure. So if you could speak to a younger Kange after <laughs> this incredible journey that you've taken, you know, the highs, the lows, the everything, if you look back to her now, the captain of the football team, you know, and she was still ambitious back then. What would the one piece of advice that you would now give her knowing everything that you know now? Oh, I think I've I've always been a direct person, but there are times when I think, okay, in this moment, I probably shouldn't say anything because of who I'm talking to or because I don't know, whatever. But usually I should have spoken up in general. There's probably a couple of exceptions. And of course you have to do it in a way that's respectful and professional. But there's been times where I thought, man, there's no going back now. Cause I have to go back now and say it, it's not gonna have the same impact. Effect. And I just, sometimes it haunts me like, oh, I wish, and you know, sometimes you don't have the words though. So even yeah. if you want to, just, but yeah, I think as, as much as you can speak up and let your voice be known, the better. Oh, I appreciate you so, so much. And thank you for, all of the advice and wisdom that you've shared today, because I know it's just going to add so much value to our listeners. So thank you so much once again for joining us. And thank I'll you for having me. It was so fun. It went too short. We could have done this for two more hours. <laughs> but we can talk forever. I mean, if we were together, we'd be now going to sing Mariah Carey in K-Town. So. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Kange. 